Now, we're, we're starting a new series. It's called A Different Kind of King. And we're getting back into Mark's gospel. And it's, it's really hard to, to overstate this. For 2,000 years, people have been meeting Christ and being transformed by it. There's no one else in history like him. There are other famous people. There are other people that have done something major in their time. But there's nobody else that has had a lingering, ongoing, apparently still living impact in people's lives like Jesus. And one of the main uh, tools that God has used to bring people to Jesus is the book of Mark. There's four gospels in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they're, they're just they're, they're documents. Mark was associated with Peter. Peter was one of the disciples. And I suspect that as Peter was coming towards the end of his life and the the threat was increasing and it looked like Peter was going to be finished, I think the people around were saying, hey, someone's got to write this stuff down. Mark, you've been hanging out with him. Why don't you do it? And so with a pen and a piece of whatever it was, papyrus or leather or whatever he used, Mark wrote out the story of Jesus. That's what a gospel is. It's sort, of, it's sort of like a biography, but it's, it's, it's really focused on his death. And yet it's not a tragedy because it finishes with the resurrection. So you get this uh, really an account of Jesus' ministry for three years, what he did and what he said, and then his death and then his resurrection. Matthew and Luke and then later John, I think, saw that and said, that's a good idea. We'll do another one. And so we've got four of these documents in our Bibles, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and we're in Mark. Mark's the shortest. In some ways, it's the action-adventure version. There's lots of immediately's. It just keeps on driving forwards. But don't take the, the shorter length to mean that it's kind of basic. It's incredibly well written. It's really carefully crafted. And Mark has done a wonderful job, inspired by God, uh, giving us an account of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus so that as we read his words in our Bibles, we can meet Christ himself. And that's the goal. The goal is not to to read an ancient document. The goal is to encounter Jesus Christ. In fact, the way Mark's gospel begins, uh, we we were were there about a year ago, I think. It was quite a while back. He begins with this statement, this sentence, where he just kind of uh, pulls back the curtains and says, hey, readers, here's the reality. This is the beginning of the gospel. That means the good news. This is the beginning of the good news of Jesus. And then he gives him two titles, the Christ, the Son of God. So this is it. This is the gospel of Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. Now, what do those two titles mean? Because they're really important to this book. First of all, Christ. That's that's not his last name. Okay, he didn't sign things Jesus Christ. Christ is a title. It's a Greek word for a Hebrew word, which the Hebrew word is Messiah. Now that's helpful. Now we've got two foreign words. What is the word in English? It would be anointed. Anointed. That's hardly a word we use either. But the idea is when when somebody's anointed in back in the day, if someone's going to be king or, or a prophet or a priest or whatever, you take oil. And you put oil on their head and they would be set apart and and specially marked out for this position, for this role, for this task that was in front of them. And so for somebody to be called not a anointed king, but the anointed one, 
it's saying something very significant. In fact, that image of oil is really a picture of God's Spirit in kind of visual form. Hey, people, look, God's Spirit is going to come on this person and he's going to be our king. Praise the Lord. And, you know, they'd celebrate. When Jesus came, Mark tells us this is the anointed one. The one that God has anointed. God has put his spirit on him and in him in a unique way. He is the one that's going to be the king. He is the one that's going to deal with all the problems. He's the one that's going to put things right. Get your eyes on the Christ. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus, the Christ, comma, the son of God. You see, Jesus isn't just a man that God said, "Mm, I like him. The the, the thing is, as you read the Gospels, you discover actually, no, before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, before he was conceived, he already existed. He has forever been God the Son. And so God the Father has forever enjoyed God the Son, and God the Son has forever responded to God the Father, and the Spirit has been communicating and uniting those two together forever so that we have a God who is three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in one. One God, three persons. Bit of a mind-stretching thing, but it's a beautiful thing, isn't it? To think that the being, the one who has created everything and who makes sense of everything, has forever been loving and forever been giving and forever been conversing, talking and listening, enjoying, maybe laughing. That's so much better than than the version we make up. The idea that God is, you know, kind of this angry, powerful, muscular being that doesn't have anyone to interact with on his level. The God of the Bible is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And we're excited about that. And and how we know that God is through Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. And so as you go through Mark's gospel, let me just give you a little snapshot of the first half. Because the first half is really answering the question that Mark has already answered for us. We read verse 1 and we go, Jesus. Oh yes, the Christ, the Son of God. Got it. Maybe. (laughs) But the people in the story didn't get it. And as you go through for eight chapters, it's, it's bizarre. At times you find yourself going, oh, come on, people. Because the, the people who were with him, his family, they didn't get it. They're like, it's Jesus, but what, what, what's he saying? What's he doing? He must be mad. The religious leaders, the experts in the, in the Hebrew Bible, they were scratching their heads going, oh, we don't get it. Who is it? it must be, he must be empowered by Satan. The disciples, these men, just common laborers that Jesus called to come and learn from him and to be with him and to travel with him, they didn't get it either. All through those first eight chapters, Jesus is is doing miracles, he's healing, he's making blind people see and lame people walk, and and he's doing all these compassionate, kind, loving things for people, and, and people are going, oh, who is he? Who is this Jesus? And finally, we get to the midpoint of the book. It's like the hinge, the pivot point of the whole book. And finally, someone is going to identify who this Jesus is. Okay, we're going to read that in just a second. And so we're going to see his uh, identity declared. And then he goes on to explain his mission, just to clarify, to make sense of what it means that he is the Christ. And then he's going to talk about the implications for his followers. That's where it gets challenging. But even in the challenging stuff this morning, my hope is that we'll find ourselves pulled inwards. Like we're, we're leaning forwards toward Jesus because uh, we may not fully grasp it yet, but it seems like he's worth trusting. 
This series is not a one-week series. Mark is not a one-story book. It takes story after story after story. The disciples are walking through this book, and just when you think they get it, they don't get it. And I love that, because I don't always get it first time, and probably you don't either. Jesus is patient, and he'll work with us, and he'll gradually draw us forward. And and we we take two steps forward, and then we take three steps back. And come on, keep coming. Lean in. Trust me. And Jesus works with us patiently to bring us to know who he is and to discover what it is to be truly alive. And so let's look at the passage. It's uh, Mark 8 this morning. Mark chapter 8. It's on page 844 in one of the Black Bibles. And we're skipping uh, eight chapters worth of really intense stuff. So I'd encourage you, take take you an hour, an hour to read through Mark 1 to 8. All right, it's not it's not a huge amount of time. Uh, skip a couple of programs. Read Mark 1 to 8. It's brilliant stuff. Okay, so read that through, and then you get to the pivot. Finally, someone is going to get who Jesus is. All right, so Jesus is, is traveling north, we're told. Now, you might say, well, what difference does that make? I don't know north from south in Bible world. Well, basically, south is Jerusalem. That's where he's heading. That's where uh, the mission is going to be completed. But he's heading north. Almost feels like he's going the wrong way. And as he's heading up towards the north, he comes to this place called Caesarea Philippi. You can visit it today. Melanie and I did a long time ago, a year we got married. And we we visited, and it's a pretty long drive. And you get up there, and there's trees, and it's green, and there's this beautiful uh, kind of sort of a lake, large pond type thing. It's, it's very, uh, it's really like a spa. People would go there for holidays and, and it's a beautiful setting and you've got this uh, sort of like a cliff um, side of, a, of the sort of hillside, rocky cliff. And within this uh, cliff face, within this rock, there is uh, a whole load, there are a whole load of little, uh, what do you call those, kind of recesses that have been carved out long time ago. Like, um, what do you call I'm missing the word here, but, you know, sorry? clefts. Let's use the word clefts because I don't use that word very much. Clefts. There's a whole load of clefts, right? Deliberately cut out, carved out, uh, recesses, clefts. And in those, they would put these little idols, all the gods of the Roman pantheon and all the kind of pagan gods and so on. It was kind of a come one, come all. This is a worship center. Isn't this wonderful? And you can just imagine Jesus walking in that direction, coming to a place like that and saying to his disciples, "Um, what do people say about me? Who do they say that I am? And the disciples go, well, actually, yeah, we've got our ear to the ground and we can tell you exactly what people are saying, Jesus. Some say you're John the Baptist. Others, Elijah, and uh, others, one of the prophets. Now, what does that mean? You've got to remember or, or, or grasp the fact that for 400 years, there had been nothing. No miracles, no angels, no prophets, nothing of the order of the kind of stuff you get in the Old Testament. And suddenly, this guy from uh, Galilee is going around and he's doing things that are miraculous. People are seeing for the first time and walking for the first time and hearing for the first time. Uh, and, and people naturally would be talking about that. And so everybody's talking and everybody's trying to figure it out. Who is he? He's obviously very significant. So some of them are saying John the Baptist, the most recent famous person they can think of. John had come and preached and, and caused a stir, hadn't done any miracles. 
Andy was dead, but they, they didn't worry about that because maybe he's come back. You know, long live Elvis, here comes John. You know, that kind of idea. Maybe it's John the Baptist. Others were going, no, no, no. The miracles, John didn't do miracles. He's Elijah. In the Old Testament, it said that Elijah's going to come before the Lord. It must be him. This must be Elijah because he's doing miracles. And others may be saying, well, maybe not Elijah, maybe Isaiah or, or Jeremiah or Daniel. He's, he's, they're trying to get a category big enough for Jesus. And that's what everyone was saying. That, would, that was the rumor. That was the, the hashtag that was going absolutely crazy in, the, in that day. Okay? And so Jesus is saying, what do the people say about me? Who do they say I am? And then he stopped and he spoke to them and he said, okay, what about you? Who do you say that I am? Because really, that is the ultimate question. Oh, we can travel together, we can do ministry together, we can, you know, turn the world upside down together. But unless you grasp who I am, we haven't got there yet. Who do you say that I am? It's a great question. It's a good question for us to ask ourselves. Who do I say that Jesus is? Some kind of guru, teacher, example, some kind of miracle worker? Perhaps someone who answers prayers, a bit of a genie, you know, genie in the bottle type of idea that if I say the right words, he'll do good things for me. Who do I say that Jesus is? I imagine that for the past year, year and a half, however long it was, as those disciples walked with Jesus and saw him in action and heard his teaching and sat around the campfire. And as he fell asleep at night after giving himself away all day, I wonder if they lay there and looked up at the stars and, and tried to process it. I wonder if they sometimes whispered to each other, do, do you think this, this could be, you know, the, the, the Messiah? Oh, I don't know, I don't know. And, and for a period of time, that idea had been kind of maybe brewing in their conversation or in their thoughts. But now Jesus had forced the issue. And Peter, uh, this, this, he'd seen enough. He said, yeah, you are the Christ. You are the Christ, the one that was anticipated for thousands of years. The one that God would send with his spirit on him and in him. The one who would be king. The one who would save us. The one who would deliver us. It's you, Jesus. You're the Christ. You're the king. You're God's king. And look at what Jesus says in return. Verse, where are we here? 29, 30. Verse 30. Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. That's kind of weird, isn't it? What you'd expect in, in that day. Here they were in Herod, uh, Philip Herod, son of uh, Herod the Great, in his territory, and suddenly one of these disciples has figured it out. Finally, you're the king. You'd expect Jesus to be like, finally, <laughs> okay, boys, now we can start going somewhere. Come on, let's go, let's go, let's go. You know, and they start doing the chant, long live King Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And you sort of rally it up and get the crowds going and then march for Jerusalem. Take on the governor, establish the kingdom. Let's do it. It's, it's time, right? And Jesus says, okay, okay that, that's correct, but don't tell anyone. What? If Jesus is the king and he's standing in a tiny little um, tetrarchy, which is a quarter of a kingdom, right? He's standing in a tiny little zone and he's been declared king, and he is the king anointed by God to be king over the whole world, why is he saying, shh, don't let anyone hear you? Either 
Number one, he's scared, and I don't think that's true. Or two, there's more to be communicated. And that's what I think is going on here. There's more to it than just recognizing that Jesus is the Christ. Because so far, what have they got? They've got a Jesus who comes and teaches and guides and leads and speaks and does miracles and healings and makes things better. If you can't walk, he can make you walk. If you can't talk, he can make you talk. If you can't see, he can make you see. And Jesus doesn't want to be that kind of a king. Because that's not ultimately what he came to do. He wasn't going to let them move forward with the idea of Jesus as a genie. He's a much bigger king than that. The amazing thing is, even now, 2,000 years later, we read a gospel, we encounter Jesus, and we find ourselves doing the same thing that the disciples did. Turning big Jesus into my little genie. You can serve me now because you can answer my prayers because you can make my life better, Jesus. But Jesus doesn't want to do that. It's not that he doesn't care. He cares. In the minutest detail, he cares. But his plans are so much bigger than that. It's like we're saying, Jesus, great, now you're king. Can you do this? And he says, no, 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 I'm going to do this. I've got something bigger in mind. And so, a great moment for Peter. He's just made the big declaration, you're the Christ. You know, he's expecting the big celebration. Jesus says, shh, and immediately begins to begin to teach them. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. He said, okay, you've got the king bit, but you don't understand the king if you don't know about the cross. Because I'm a man on a mission. I've come from God, and I'm going to Jerusalem. And I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to die. And that is the reason I'm here. Uh, Making this as plain as I can. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. Three days, I'm going to rise again. Uh, Okay, that's the kind of king I am. You're expecting a genie in a bottle king. You're expecting a, a king who's going to establish a little kingdom for a while. But I'm a different kind of king. I'm a king who comes to die because I've got a bigger plan. Peter can't comprehend that. In the space of three verses, he goes from being the hero of the group to being singled out and rebuked. Because what he does next is, it seems unbelievable, but I, I, I want to suggest that we do the same thing sometimes. Peter took Jesus aside and he started putting his finger into his chest and, and poking him and saying, listen, Christ, you're you're missing something here. This is not going to happen. There's no way we're going to let you suffer and die. No way. It's not going to happen. And Jesus turned and saw the disciples watching and took his moment to teach them all a lesson. And he put his finger in Peter's chest and rebuked Peter. And what did he say? Get behind me, Satan. That's harsh. How could he say that? This was one of his best followers. Certainly one of the boldest. How could he call him Satan? God's enemy. And how is it that Peter could go from being hero to villain in three verses? Well, look in the mirror. If I look in the mirror, I see someone that can do that. 
I can have a great moment of profound spirituality where I'm celebrating Jesus and then something changes, some circumstance happens and I can find myself getting in his face and saying, that's not appropriate, Jesus. You shouldn't have let that happen. Because after all, God is in charge. Jesus is the son of God. He can do whatever he likes. And so why did you let this happen? You shouldn't have let that happen. You've made a mistake. And that's me rebuking Jesus, isn't it? I have my life planned uh, and you're my genie and now you haven't given me my wish. I prayed and you said no. What are you thinking? I'm facing a difficult week and you've made it worse. How am I going to get through today? I haven't slept. Just the big things, the little things, the the illnesses, the bereavements, the, the great big issues and the tiny issues. Anything, it seems, can spark us into standing up a little bit too tall and poking Jesus in the in the chest and saying, you're out of line now because that was not according to plan. And I tell you, I am so thankful that Jesus rebuked Peter. Not because I like being rebuked, I can't stand it. But I trust God to do it well. If God, the God of the universe, the God who created everything, if his son comes into this world to die for me, I'm going to accept it when he pokes me back and says, get behind You're full of yourself. You're getting pumped up as if you're some kind of alternative God, and you're not. That's a lie. It's the lie. You cannot be like God. That's the lie that has been kind of pervading humanity since Genesis 3. You can be like God, eat the fruit, do your own thing. You don't need God. And we grow up in this world committed to the idea that we can be in charge of our own universe. And then we meet Jesus, and we discover that actually he's in charge of the universe. And we submit to him and we bow to that and we trust him. And then at a moment's notice, with the slightest circumstance, we can rise up like a cobra. And the hiss is there because we're saying, I'm in charge. You're out of line. You see why Jesus called him Satan? Because he was speaking the words of a fallen world, the words of the one who had, had caused the mess in the first place, making us think that we are in charge and we know what's best for us. And Jesus says, get behind me, get back in line. I'm the leader. You need to follow me. Don't rise up and rebel. Don't rise up and, and mutiny. You trust me. Even in the toughest of circumstances, even with the worst of news, even whatever's happening, you can trust me. And how do we know we can trust him? Because we've got the rest of the gospel. We've got a different kind of king, a kind of king who's just said, I'm ready to die. So I thank God that he's able and willing to rebuke us when the lie rises up within us. And we start to act like my universe is the center of everything. And then Jesus carries on. And it's quite strong what he says to them. He he said to Peter, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And then he calls together, verse 34, the crowd with his disciples. And he said to everyone, he's, he's getting a crowd even up north there. He says to everyone, if anyone would come after me, taking the place that I've just put Peter back in as a follower, if anyone wants to be a follower of me, Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? For what can a man give in return 
for his life. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. That's a strong message, isn't it? Who is Jesus? Jesus is the Christ. Not a genie. Not just a guru. He is the Christ who is ready to die. He's heading to Jerusalem and he's going to die in order to rescue us. What does it mean to follow him? That's going to be the big question over the next eight chapters. What does it mean to walk in the way of Jesus? He makes it pretty plain. He says, take up your cross and follow me. That's a phrase that's become part of our language. You know, my uh, boiler has failed and the electrician, the plumber can't come till tomorrow. I guess that's the cross I have to bear. If only that was a cross. (laughs) You see, in those days, they knew exactly what it meant to take up your cross and follow. It meant to take up the cross piece and to walk to your death. Strong language, isn't it? To say, you know what, I've lived my whole life with me on the throne of my little universe, but now I'm going to let that go. I'm going to lay that down. And instead of trying to save my life, instead of trying to make my life something by my own effort, I'm going to say, you know what, I am letting that go. I'm going to die to the old me and I'm going to follow Jesus, whatever the cost. Because he can be trusted. Because he's leading the way. And he doesn't ask us to do anything that he hasn't done first. He's going to the cross. He's ready to die, literally enduring the agony of that. And if that's how much he loves us, then he invites us to lay our lives down for him. I was trying to think of a way to illustrate this. And I I thought of, of how it's very easy for us to get caught up in our life as if our life is very big. You know, I'm going to pour my life into this. I'm going to, you know, go after this. I've got these ambitions. I've got these dreams. I'm going to, uh, my circumstances, my comfort, my wealth. And, and we pour ourselves into that. And we can be blind to the fact that eternity is a whole lot bigger. How much bigger? Well, infinitely bigger. But how do we get our minds around infinitely bigger? Well, one way of thinking about it uh, is to imagine a thimble, or even if you can see it, see the thimble. Imagine that a thimble expresses the totality of your life. All right? So uh, your, your uh, days, your health, your wealth, your, your career, everything. And that is what we are completely obsessed with. And now compare that to an ocean. How many thimbles does it take to empty an ocean? How many thimblefuls of water would leave the Atlantic dry? You probably know. I had to look it up. I'll show you. Uh, This is the answer. 93 sextillion, 123 quintillion, 818 quadrillion, 394 trillion, 624 billion, and 99 times this equals the Atlantic. Can we get our heads around that? Not a chance. But you know what we do? We, we, we take our lives and we live our lives and, and we, we say, okay, Jesus, you want to be my savior? I need you on my side. Would you, um, would you help me out with, with my, uh, my cold? I've got a common cold and I'd love to get rid of it. And, and I've got exams coming up. Oh, thank you so much. I did okay in my exams. 
Uh, and we, we live our life as if the, the little drops are the whole deal. I want that promotion. Oh, Lord, I so want that promotion. Thank you for the promotion. How significant is this? Lord, I, I really want to, to, to have you know, that person as a good friend. I really want to, to be healthy and jogging in my 80s. I mean, it's, it's amazing, isn't it? The things that we, we get obsessed with. Um, Lord, I, I'd love a new car. There it is. Oh, that's, that one's rusted. I'd love a new car. And we spend our whole lives focusing on these tiny little things. And there's two things that actually are astounding about this. One is that Jesus actually cares about that stuff. I mean, he, he cares about the minute details of your attitude, your, your situation, your comfort, your hurts. When you cry a tear, he cares. And yet he cares too much to care as if that's the whole deal. He cares too much to care as if that little drop is what really matters. You know why? It's because he knows what life is all about. He knows what eternity is. And he knows that even if he answers all your prayers, yes, 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 and you gain the whole world, and you get all the wealth, and you have the best of health, and you know, you're on the covers of magazines in your 70s because you're so stunning. Whatever it is, he knows that what does that add up to? It adds up to a thimble. And in a moment, it's gone. And he loves us too much. To let us live for that. And so what does he say? If a man gains the whole world and yet loses his soul, he's got nothing. Which is why Jesus didn't come to be a genie and, and care about our thimbles quite as much as we do. He cares, but not exclusively about the thimble. He cares about the hearts that we have in the midst of those things because that's all we can see. But he also cares because he knows how big the ocean is. He knows how wonderful eternity is. And he knows that there's something bigger than the biggest prayers that we pray in this life. It's powerful, isn't it, to think that? Why, why would Jesus want to reduce himself down to a genie that just does miracles every time we ask? I'd love to get rid of this sore throat, Lord. Okay, there you go. What if I gained the whole world, but I lost my soul? I'd love to get that promotion, Lord. There you go. What if I gained the whole world, but I lost my soul? The uh, story is told. I don't know if it's true. A historian will probably correct me, but Charlemagne, the first uh, kind of emperor of Western Europe, the, the renewed Roman Empire in the, was the 800s, uh, he accumulated everything, France, Germany, Italy, built this whole thing. And when he died, he was buried. And, and sometime later, uh, a couple of hundred years later, they went in and they went into his tomb. And there was all the wealth and all the stuff and all the gold. And apparently, so the story goes, his skeleton was sitting on a throne and on his lap there was a Bible. And somebody somehow had arranged it with his finger pointing to this verse. What does it profit a man? If he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul. Jesus is talking to his disciples as they're doing a U-turn to head south to Jerusalem. He's going to show them what kind of scope he has in mind. He's going to give them the big picture. He's going to take them and lead them all the way to the cross. And there he's not going to ask them to die as his followers. He's going to go and he's going to die himself. 
to pay the price to make it possible for this to be translated into an ocean times an ocean times an ocean times an ocean. Eternal life, real life, life to the full. And so what do we give in exchange for our lives? The stuff that we accumulate in it? Lord, I'd like to live longer. I'm coming towards the end now and I'm getting nervous. There's heart disease in the family. I don't want to die yet. And so how about I give you some stuff to give me more life? What do we give him? We, We haven't got anything. And so we have to cast ourselves on him and tell him, Lord, I have got nothing to offer. I'm not clever enough, bright enough, intelligent enough, good-looking enough. I cannot work my way up and out of this thimble that I think is my life, that I think is so important. I'm here, and I'm tiny, and I need you. And Jesus, you know what he says? He says, when when the Son of Man comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels... He will not be ashamed of you. When the whole of reality as we've known it for hundreds of years suddenly gets pulled back like a curtain and the king comes and everything gets put right side up and all the the wrongs are put right and everything that's messy is corrected. When the king comes and every atheist and every other person and everyone on the planet and every creature goes, it's King Jesus and the whole planet bows. When that happens, there are going to be those people who Jesus is not ashamed to call his own. Hey, so good to see you finally. Isn't that amazing? And what does he ask of us? That we pay him something? No. Simply that in this life, we identify ourselves with him. In this life, now, we say, you know what? I'm not doing any deals here, Lord. I'm just yours. I am yours. You're the Christ. You're the Savior. You're the King. I'm walking around in a thimble. I'm yours. And if we're not ashamed of him now, when he comes, he won't be ashamed of us then. Even in a a really strong, really frightening warning, there's an implicit hope of the love relationship that is God the Trinity. Who's he not going to be ashamed of us towards? His father, perhaps? Hey, father. I've I've told you about him a lot, but let me introduce you to Tim. Hey, father, I want you to know, uh, I want you to know Karis. She's mine. Isn't that amazing? When he comes with all the glory of his father, the ultimate glory, and all the angel armies, angel armies are going to be there, then Jesus is going to say, this one's mine, this one's mine, This one's mine. But for those of us who've lived our lives as if this matters, as if everything that goes on in here is the whole of reality, fitter, cleverer, more education, more degrees, more, you know, wealth, more promotions. Yeah, I've lived my life. I've gained it all. I've filled it to the brim. And then it's gone. For people who've lived the lie, who've been ashamed of him and said, I don't want you. I'm going to do this my way. It's the most stark warning you can ever imagine. Because when he comes, he comes to deal with that. He comes to wipe that clean. He comes to make things right. And so here we are this morning, 2,000 years later, tempted like every other human that's ever lived to think that our thimble is the whole deal. And Mark's gospel says, no, it isn't. Look at the ocean. 
That's what Jesus has in mind and that's what Jesus has in store. And look at the cross. That's how much he loves you.